And welcome to those of you who are joining us online. I'm so glad that you could be here. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Pastor Graham. I'm the teaching pastor here at Elam Chapel. And uh, we're starting a new series today uh, where we're going to be looking at two books of the Bible, two short books, and we'll work through them chapter by chapter. These are the two letters of Peter in the New Testament, creatively referred to as first and second Peter. Today we're going to start with the first chapter of Peter, but before we get into the text, let's remind ourselves a little bit of some context. Peter, the author, formerly Simon, son of Jonah, was a fisherman from Galilee in northern Israel. He was one of Jesus' disciples and in some sense was the leader of the disciples. In many instances in the Gospels, Jesus will ask a question and Peter is the one to give the answer. For some, this is seen as a delightful personality quirk, suggesting that Peter was constantly putting his foot in his mouth. This is something that I relate to. However, it's probably more accurate to conclude that often when the Gospels talk about Peter speaking, they're using him as a sort of figurehead for the rest of the disciples. It may be that all or many of the disciples had a question and that Peter was the one to actually present it to Jesus. It could be that many of them were confused and that Peter was the one to give their question voice. Or it may also be that Peter, as their leader, was in some sense viewed as a placeholder for whoever it was that had spoken if for some reason the writer couldn't remember in that particular instance. This seems less likely, but it's a possibility. Regardless, Peter features prominently in the Gospels, probably second only to Jesus himself. Peter is an interesting guy because he's present for some really important things, and then he's also not present for some important things. Like, he's not at the crucifixion. Peter's run away along with the other disciples, except for John. Peter gets rebuked most harshly by Jesus when Jesus tells them that he is going to die. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, and this is directed at Peter. Peter's also not at the resurrection. He's not even the first one to see the empty tomb. During Jesus' trial, Peter renounces Jesus, calling down curses upon himself while Jesus is imprisoned and before the kangaroo courts that would ultimately execute him. These are important, painful failures that Peter would carry his entire life. But Peter would also experience the exceptional restoration of God when Jesus met him and the others by the Sea of Galilee and made them breakfast. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter was there when Jesus was transfigured. He saw Moses and Elijah and he heard God's voice out of the cloud. Peter was one of, them, one of the ones sent out by Jesus to touch and heal. Peter touched the blind and they saw. He touched the demon-possessed and they were restored. He touched the lame and they saw, or they walked. Peter walked on water. He also sank in the water. But don't miss that he is the only one other than Jesus to do that. Peter made the bold proclamation of Jesus' identity. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in return, he was given a new name. Peter, Rock. The first half of the book of Acts follows Peter closely as he preaches, performs miracles, and watches the kingdom of God spread. 
The Gospel of Mark is widely believed to be based upon Peter's testimony. And then, near the end of his life, Peter writes two letters. The first, which we are discussing today, is written to a group of churches in Asia Minor, which we today refer to as Turkey. In verse 1, he addresses himself to Christians in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Pontus and Bithynia are both on the northern coast of Turkey, on the Black Sea. Cappadocia and Galatia are the interior, Galatia being basically the central area, as in the letter to the Galatians, same place. Cappadocia is the more mountainous region in central Turkey on the eastern edge towards Armenia. Asia is shorthand for the Aegean coast of Turkey, so that you can see that all of these areas are clustered together. This is a really tight geography of churches that Peter has sent this letter to. This letter was apparently written intending for it to be circulated between these churches. Peter would later die in Rome during the persecution of Nero sometime around AD 65 or 64. Church tradition says that they were going to crucify him, but he asked to be crucified upside down because he was not worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. Paul would also die in the same persecution, but because Paul was a Roman citizen, he was beheaded. Fun facts. Now, there is some debate as to whether Peter actually wrote First and Second Peter. The skeptical people claim that the Greek used in these letters is too eloquent for a Galilean fisherman. Personally, I don't think this is a great argument. Peter writes this letter some 30 years after Jesus' ascension. That's a lot of time to learn to write. And that's a lot of sermons and speaking and practice and, frankly, other letters that he was writing. So to me, that's kind of like saying, oh, there's no way that Shakespeare could have written Macbeth. He was a child at one point. I mean, like, that's true. Yes, Shakespeare was a child at one point, and Peter was a Galilean fisherman. But a lot can happen in between. It's also possible that Peter wrote this letter the same way that he wrote the Gospel of Mark, by use of a secretary. The last chapter mentions Peter writing this letter with the help of Silas, or Silvanus, depending on your translation. It's possible that the differences that we see between the two letters are due to the one actually penning the letter and that not being Peter. So there are still a lot of good reasons to think that Peter is behind these letters. The letters themselves claim to be from Peter. Early Christian tradition all holds that Peter wrote these letters, including Clement of Rome, who wrote at the end of the first century. That's very early for a belief like that to have sprung up if it wasn't founded in real history. So 1 Peter, if written by Peter, which we believe it was, had to have been written prior to Peter's execution under the Romans in AD 65. However, when you read this letter, it's quite obvious that to Peter, the writing was on the wall. Peter writes this letter to Christian churches to warn them of the coming persecution and to stand firm in the faith. Well, before we go any further, let's actually read the text, and then we can talk about what this chapter has to say to us today. So 1 Peter chapter 1, if you want to follow along on your phone or in your Bible, Peter is right after James, which is right after Hebrews. Um, It's very close to the end of the Bible. Uh, I'm sure you can find it. We'll start reading 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect... Exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, 
Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Christ Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that they prove the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires that you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, so your faith and hope are in God." Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this letter from your servant, Peter. We pray that you would open our hearts and our minds, that we would learn something, that we would draw nearer to you, that we would be shaped more into the image of your son as we submit ourselves to your word. In your name we pray. Amen. There are a couple of things to notice about this chapter. Let's start at the beginning, shall we? 
There's an interesting thing to note about Peter's credentials. Now, usually when we think about letters in the New Testament, we think about letters from Paul. There are 27 books in the New Testament. 13 of them were definitely written by Paul. There are question marks around Hebrews, like Hebrews might have been written by Paul, and that would make Paul over 50% of the New Testament letters, or uh, documents. But even at 13, that's a significant amount. So comparing it to how Paul introduces himself seems kind of natural. We often see something like this. In Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul's greeting is, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. 1 Corinthians begins, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Ephesians 1.1 says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul has something to say about his apostleship. He says, I have been called. He's sort of putting himself out there. He's sort of showing his credentials. Peter doesn't do that. Paul became an apostle. Paul refers to himself as an apostle born out of time. He was, he was not part of the original 12, but was called by God later on the, on the road to Damascus. Peter, however, begins his letter this way. 1 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's it. He doesn't justify it. He doesn't have anything to say. He's like... Hey, what's up? It's me, Peter. Yes, that Peter. I'm that Peter. He doesn't, have to, he doesn't have to justify himself because Peter is, he's the Peter, right? <laughs> he's the one who stucks his foot in his mouth all the time. He's the one who says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He's the one who denies Jesus. He's the one who feed my lambs. And like, like, he's that Peter. He doesn't feel the need to justify himself, which is really interesting to me. And to me, that's one of the reasons why I really do believe Peter wrote this letter, because that, that's something that seems like it would be, make perfect sense. Let's move on. We've talked a little bit already about the intended, recipient, intended recipients of this letter, that it was a series of churches and Christian communities in Turkey. But I want to revisit this briefly to share one more thing about it. First Peter is part of a group of letters in the New Testament referred to as the general epistles. These were letters written not so much in response to a particular crisis and not so much even to a specific group as to the church more generally. Like, Paul would hear about something going wrong in Galatia and then he would write the letter to the Galatians to correct them. He would leave a pastor in Crete or Ephesus or wherever and then he'd write him a letter to encourage him. And then we'd get 1 Timothy. But 1 Peter isn't like that. It's written to a whole group of churches and Christians more generally, and although it has subject matter that it wants to cover, it's not really written in response to things that are already going on. Not only that, 1 Peter is written quite explicitly to Christians who used to be Gentiles. These are not Jewish converts to Christ. These are people who used to be pagans. Look at verse 18 of this first chapter. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. How's that for a reference to you came out of a pagan culture? So this letter is to people who are not Jews. They are not descendants of Abraham. They are not part of the chosen people of God. Do you know who that sounds like to me? 
Us. That sounds like us. I love the general epistles because of the whole New Testament, they might be the least steeped in their local culture and therefore the most easily applicable to our own lives today. That being said, still steeped in local culture, still need to do a little bit of work to apply to us today because we need to think those things through. But on that note, take note as we work through this letter of the beautiful Old Testament imagery that Peter brings up and how he applies these images to Gentile believers. Remember, that's you and me, right? And these images from Israel's history of God's covenant relationship and that he applies those to us. The first example is of sprinkling with blood. In Exodus 24, verses 7 to 8, we read, When Moses is establishing the covenant with Israel, then he, Moses, took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. Aren't you glad church isn't that long? They responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This is important imagery. The people have been sprinkled with the blood of the covenant. Those are the people of the covenant. And then what does Jesus say at the Last Supper? He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We read similar words from 1 Corinthians this morning when we did communion, right? The new covenant in Christ's blood. So being sprinkled with the blood of the covenant is you being in the covenant, and Jesus' blood is the blood of the new covenant. And then what does Peter call the people, the Gentiles, who receive this letter? 1 Peter 1, 2 who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. This is amazing. Peter is speaking to people whom the Old Testament would call outsiders. He would refer to them as the nations, which is where we get our word ethnic from. It's the nations, it's them. He calls them, those people who are on the outside, You are the people of the covenant. He is including them in that great history. This is good news. The outsider is invited in and made welcome. And that's just about a whole sermon right there. Right? We could just talk about that for the whole thing. But now Peter starts to get into the meat of his message. There's going to be lots for us to do. Lots for us to work on and strive towards But look hard and think about how Peter starts in verses 3 to 12. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. There's so much going on here. Peter has lots to say, and he has lots to say to the people in these churches, and we're going to go through that. But he starts with God. He starts with what God has already accomplished, with what is already done. 
because this is the foundation of everything. We don't start with our effort. We don't start with our to-do list with a set of goals and a plan for how to reach them and a motivational speech to get us going. We start at the end. It's done. Jesus did it all. He did what we never could. And now, from that end, from that place of victory, we work backwards. We ask, in light of what God has won, who can I be? Who must I be to participate in that? In light of the power that God has given with what his spirit inside and his church around, now what? But that is where we have to start. So many of us want to speed past this because we want to get to the application, but we can't. We have to start here. Have to start with praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because it's done. In addition, Peter also spends much of this first chapter reminding Christians about what is waiting for them. Think back to all of the things that he just had to say about inheritance, an inheritance incorruptible and kept in heaven. Peter holds up the promise of heaven, of life eternal with God, as the goal, as the reward for all the suffering of this life that makes it worthwhile. One of the criticisms of Christianity in the first century was that it seemed to, be, to them, to the Roman world, to be some sort of strange death cult. Because the Christians were so eager to die. They were excited about death. And this was very strange to the Greeks and Romans around them. And frankly, it's a little weird today too. Millennials and Gen Z tend to joke a fair bit about wanting to die, but I think usually that's just wishing for the chaos to stop. Many Christians today want to speak about application. Application, application, application. How is this going to change my life? How can tomorrow and Tuesday and Friday be different? And that is super important. Don't get me wrong. If your Christianity isn't changing how you live your life, something is wrong. But at the same time, what Jesus offers us isn't a behavior modification program. It isn't some self-help secrets to a better life. The message of the cross is, at the most fundamental, hope for the life to come. Peter says in verse 13, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. That, this, ultimately, is the comfort that Peter is offering to churches and Christians who are suffering, who feel like they can't do it anymore, who feel like they're at their limit. Peter's response to them is to hold on because it's worth it. What God has waiting for us, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined. Hold on. Cling to Christ and to the living hope that he gives us. There's so much more to say on this topic, but it's going to have to wait for next week. We've been at this a while, and I want to let Peter explain it to you better than I can. So next week, we'll pick up where we left off, and we'll dig into Peter's call to us as followers of Jesus as he builds his case across this letter. But for this week, remember that we begin with what God has already finished and that what God calls us to is worth what we're going through in this life. Let's pray. God, thanks for your word. 
Lord, it feels funny to leave it here, to leave it for next week and to hold on. But Lord, we've all got our own Bibles. We can all read ahead. Thank you, God, that you speak to each one of us, that we have your spirit, that we have a direct line to you, and that you want to speak into our lives. We pray that you would this week. We pray that we would cling to you, God. We pray that we would remember the things that you have done and accomplished, both on a cosmic scale and just in our lives, Lord. You've been so good to us. We pray that you'd be with us this week. In your name we pray. Amen.